Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to another episode of Best Health Radio brought to you by Ask the PA, Barb Regis, live here in Phoenix, Arizona at Max 6. I got to tell you, I hope you stick with this particular episode all the way through because it's going to go all over the place. So first of all, I want to say to you that yesterday I had my last treatment of immunotherapy and we're going to just pray that that's uh, end of a chapter and I'm grateful for that. We had amazing time with some people last night and I want to shout out to some people that couldn't be there last night. One of them is the amazing CEO of Phoenix Business Radio X, Karen Nowicki, who's here and I'm telling her to pipe in if she would like to. Also, Marsha, you are out in England right now. Thank you for the beautiful card and flowers. And oh man, there's so many people that have sent me well wishes and gifts. Thank you so, so much. And then Today in the show, I brought a special guest, but before I introduce this special guest, I have my mascot from Premise Health called Stanley. And Stanley's been with me since the beginning of my gig over at Inside Enterprises, and I call him the chief complaint officer. And he travels with me, and he's and he's no bigger than the size of a pencil, but he's my go-to guy. So when I've had immunotherapy, he's been with me at a few treatments and lately he hasn't gotten out of the office and I felt he should come with me at just our mascot today. But probably, and I want to thank my husband, you know how I feel about everything that you've done for me and supported me on and continue to support me on. Um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to so many people right now. I can't even begin to start. The reason we're having the show today on Friday is because I have a very special guest and I wanted to honor all of the nurses out there in the entire world. And I want to say that I have so many friends that are nurses. I can't list you all on the show right now, but you know who you are. I love you all. I think the work that you do is amazing. I've never seen, I have to say it once, I've never seen you guys playing cards on the job. And what I've seen you guys do is sacrifice your families, sacrifice your time, Go above and beyond for your patient. And the most important thing that I've witnessed with nurses is that they've advocated for patients to the point of no return. If it wasn't for the nurses, a lot of the outcomes in many environments, outpatient and inpatient, would have not gone as well. So I am thanking you, nurses all over the world. God bless you. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The special guest I have in this, uh, in the office in the show in the studio today is someone that I've known since I was four years old. And her name is Mary Lindy, and she is the executive director of St. Paul Towers in Oakland, California. She has the most amazing story in her life about her career and what she's doing now for advocacy for elders. And it was like she made a sacrifice to come down, be with me when I was first diagnosed then she said, no matter what, I'm going to be here for your last treatment. We lost each other for about 15 years and we rekindled that relationship and we've been strong like sisters ever since. And I am honored to have you in the studio today. Mary Lindy, welcome. Thanks, Beach. It's good to, ha- good to be here. And I just want to clarify, we lost each other because there weren't cell phones or internet yeah. or Facebook. We would have been in touch had I know. that not been the case. I'm just so glad we found each other. And it was kind of, I don't even remember how it happened, but it, it happened. And that was how many years ago? 
We found each other in 1990. Wow. So you moved away in, I think, 75, and then we met again in 90. How crazy is that? Can I give you a little background on our story? Four years old, we met. We lived in the same town. She lived down the street on Main Street from my home. And my dad was her town doctor. And we are thrilled to say that tomorrow we're going to actually spend time together with my dad. And he hasn't seen Mary since... I think about 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. And he's all excited to see you. Oh, I'm excited to see him. And I think we're even going to FaceTime my mother, who's 90, who wants to see him as well. Isn't that awesome what we can do now with all of this technology? We can FaceTime people that have probably, well, I don't think he's talking to your mom since they moved, right? I don't think so either. But the, the thing I want to say about your dad is this. Um, he was the Norman Rockwell doctor, that painting of a Norman Rockwell doctor. And we were a family of eight kids in a, in a town of 1,200 people. So your dad was a big part of our life. And I'm so lucky that I still get to keep him. And he's still my friend all these years later. Oh, how cool is that? Mary, we're just going to dive in. Okay. Let's talk about why did you go into nursing? <laughs> uh, I went into nursing because I wanted to be an artist and my parents laughed at me and said, um, you can be a nurse or a teacher. That's the education we'll pay for. And I knew that as an empath, I knew that nursing might be the right thing for me to do. I had done nurses aid work because I'm practical and working at McDonald's was minimum wage. And if you worked as a, as a nurse's aid, you got 585 an hour when minimum wage was about 350. Smart, smart. And then basically you graduated high school and where'd you end up going to school? I went to a tiny little college called Eastern Mennonite University. There were a thousand students undergraduate really? in my college, like the size of high school, really. Um, and the reason I chose that school was because it was BSNs were starting to gain traction and not a lot of schools had accredited BSN programs. Uh, that's a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Right. And before that, it was basically associate's degree or on the job? It was mostly a diploma school of nursing. Okay. And then if you did get a bachelor's degree, you went back and did that. So you were an RN, comma, BS. Gotcha. But the, the notion of a BSN, this combined degree, was new. And my father really felt strongly that I should get that. So Eastern Mennonite University was unique in that it was two years pre-med, solid science. Wow. And then three years of clinical. So um, it was a nod to those of us who really wanted that strong clinical background in the hospital presence um, that a diploma school would have given us. And I have no regrets about going there. The only thing that was odd is that I didn't know what a Mennonite was until I got there. And so you had to participate in any religious studies while you were there? Um, yeah, I had to take okay. Old Testament theology and New okay. Testament theology, but I didn't mind that so much. That was interesting. Um, the, the harder part about it was that Culturally, I didn't fit in. I had short hair. I wore makeup. I had two holes in my ears, and uh, they didn't. Wow. Know, they didn't know what to do with me because I was I was a foreigner. Mary's in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so, where is that university located, and is it still in existence today? It is, and it's much stronger. And they have a graduate school. It's called Eastern Mennonite University now. It's in Harrisonburg, Virginia. When I went there, it was a college. Harrisonburg. It, Harrison. Harrisonburg, okay. so James Madison University. Yeah, that's what I was going to say because I actually school. know a couple of professors that work there, and so okay, I didn't know so that. Why? That is very very cool. So you go ahead, do your five years. Yes, you get your degree as a BSN, and so it's so new. You're applying for jobs with this new BSN degree. 
You're competing against people with lesser degrees. Uh, you know, um, So great story on this yeah, one. Tell me about so it. So when I graduated from nursing school in 1985, um, diagnostic-related groups, DRGs, just came to be. And so gone were the days of you went into the hospital for a baby, for instance, and stayed until you felt comfortable going home or had enough right. sleep. Uh, there was a the diagnostic-related groups dictated how many days a person was allowed to stay in the hospital, no matter how well they were or not. So that started way back then. It started in the mid-80s. Wow. And because of it, there was there were way too many nurses for the kinds of jobs that were available. Mm -hmm. So as a new graduate, I remember being told that I was going to be one of 30 hires, and there were over 600 applicants for that. And I really believe it's that BSN that got me that job. And what was the job? Huh. Lehigh Valley Hospital Network in Love it. Allentown, Pennsylvania. Love it. Med Surge Floor Unit 5B. And that hospital today is huge. It is. It's a wonderful place. It was a great place to 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 learn med surge. Yeah, and one of our neighbors actually is a laboratory tech there. Nice. So you you go there, you go t- tell tell more people about what you do on that type of floor. So as a new graduate nurse, it, the idea is to get as much um, clinical mm-hmm. experience as you can before you specialize. And the funny thing is now medical surgical nursing is considered a specialty. But back in those days, it was considered general nursing. Right. So we saw anybody, I got, I saw people with encephalitis. I saw people with gunshot wounds. I saw people with, I saw one woman, I remember, a car rolled off a truck in front of her and landed on her. And oh, she wow. Was, she was less concerned about all the stitches on her face and chest as she was about the new car she was going to get. And that still sticks with me. Isn't that amazing? And you think about that is that today everything is so, I hate to use the word compartmentalized, but kind of it is. You know, you have telemed, you have trauma, you've got ICU, you've got cardiac floor, you've got all of these different specialty areas. And what Mary's basically saying is 1985, she was doing it all. What a great way to get experience and see so many different things and work with physicians from so many different backgrounds. How long did you stay there? I wasn't there long. I was there about six months mm-hmm. because the need to move out of my parents' house was strong. And I had a friend who wanted to move closer to Philadelphia. Okay. I got a job at a suburb hospital called Abington Memorial Hospital. Uh-huh. They were opening a new neurocritical care step-down unit. So that's how you got into neuro. And I was asked to open it. Yeah, they sent me to like a three-day training at Jefferson Hospital, and I was considered a neuro nurse. Now get that. Do you hear what she said? Three days, she's considered a neuro nurse, and she's also helping to open up the wing at that time. And it was a night <sighs> so shift dynamic. position, so mm-hmm. I was alone on that on that unit at night. I was I was usually the sole nurse with two or three nurses' aides on okay, night and shift. What was your census back then? I think it was about forty five beds. So forty five beds, three nurses assistants, and essentially yourself running the unit. Well, that's like running fast and learning fast in the job, huh? I remember one night on that unit, um, we had three people who were um, strokes in progress. But the good thing was we had a house supervisor who came and we had a lot of residents who were doing their their residency programs. And so if anything interesting happened, they, they came quickly. Right. And of course, nurses from floors below and above came to help too. Isn't isn't it interesting um, to just hear back then how things were starting to transition slowly? At that point, was there traditional health insurance? Oh, yeah. I mean, like Blue Cross Blue Shield, that kind of thing. All the insurances were still still prominent. Um, But I want to 
just to differ a little yeah. bit. Back yeah. then, one of the things that I think is crazy, this would have been 1986. Right. Nurses still smoked at the nurse's station when they gave report. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> those are the kinds of changes. 19, 1986, <laughs> you're smoking. And then that's when you kind of saw those, those Marlboro commercials of the physician in his office smoking while he's, you know, tell, examining you and things like that. You know, and this is why... This is such a fun moment for me because I'm actually, for the first time, everybody getting to hear this story and putting it all in pieces. So you're smoking on the floors. Hopefully there wasn't too much oxygen around you. Well, I wasn't smoking on the floors. No, I know you were. I was one of the ones She's a non-smoker. But what's so interesting, yeah, we had signs on doors, no smoking in this room. But there, right at the nurse's station or in the back room, people were smoking. And I remember going into the bathroom after somebody had smoked in the bathroom. And I I got a petition saying, let my bathroom be smoke-free. Good for you, Mary. (laughs) So you're the beginning of the change on that. Do you remember um, when finally hospitals were like, no more smoking in hospital? Well, interestingly, the hospital I worked at before that hospital, mm-hmm. Lehigh Valley Hospital, had stopped allowing smoking right. on the on the nursing units. But they had a off the cafeteria, they had a glassed-in room where people could smoke at lunch or at their huh. meal break. But the the funny thing was, you couldn't see into the room because it was gray inside there. Oh. It wasn't ventilated well. Oh, I can just imagine. But that's, now, that's of course, campuses don't even let you smoke on campus. You have to right. get off campus. Right. And and companies like my own, we incentivize people to quit smoking. Right. And and there's a lot of movements for that, you know, and also discounts in health insurance and that kind of thing and premiums if you're a non-smoker. Right. So you think, people, 1985, and you think of where we are now, and that's only like in the last, you know, 34 years. Right. So, Mary... You're there. How long did you stay? I stayed at Abington a year because I got married and moved to Boston. And by some dumb luck, I got accepted into the neurocritical care unit at Mass General Hospital. Wow, kudos. Well, I think it was a mistake. What happened was... (laughs) She's so honest. I think it was a mistake. I just think she's brilliant, but she thinks it's a mistake. Somebody wrote me a letter of recommendation Mm -hmm. from Abington. Right. And they called it a neuro unit that I worked on, not a neuro step-down unit. And there's actually a five-year waiting list to get into the neuro critical care unit at Mass General. But because I had what they thought was experience, they brought me in. And of course, I got there on my first day of orientation. They expected me to know a whole lot more than I knew and um, found out I didn't um, indeed Mm -hmm. have the critical care background. And they were gracious about it because it was their mistake. And um, they sent me through a critical care course and I stayed there. She's a quick study. She's very, very brilliant. How how long was the course? It was about three weeks. Awesome. Yeah. And then you, you know, kept on learning more and well i had a preceptor who really you know helped me through and then it doesn't take long till you learn how to do things and and um and then i became a preceptor and um giving back yeah always yeah and just loved it loved being in that environment one of the fun things about mass general was that it's harvard's teaching hospital right and we were told when on at orientation that if we could get into harvard they would pay for us to go to harvard so much a semester so i got to take an undergraduate statistics course at harvard which was really fun that's awesome <laughs> really that's fun great. And, and and because of it, I didn't have to take GREs because that's on my transcript. And when that I went, you went to Harvard, you yeah, didn't have to take for GREs. one class. But but um, when I applied for um, graduate school at Drexel University, they saw that I had passed undergrad statistics at Harvard and said, "Yeah, don't bother taking GREs." That is the most amazing story, it's right there. Hilarious, it is. <laughs> so so she's 
at this point, now you think about it. How many years have you been out, out of uh, your school? I graduated in 85. Okay. That would have been 88 to 89 Okay, that I was there. So how amazing, like these transitions as fast as they were happening. And then you say to me, I applied to graduate school at Drexel. Tell me about that. I did that late in my career. I was mm-hmm. in my 40s. Oh, okay. I was. Um, I had switched from critical care to um, aging services. Okay. I, I um, unfortunately went through a divorce, and I needed I needed non shift work, so I needed to work mm-hmm. Monday through Friday daytime hours, so I could accommodate my kids before and after school schedules. Uh-huh. So I fell into a teaching position in a long term care. Usually there's a required position called an in-service coordinator or director of staff development. And I walked into one of those positions because I had been teaching in the tri-state area for Johns Hopkins. So how did you get to Johns Hopkins? Sorry, I knew I was going to mess that up. That's okay. I got to Hopkins because I was at Mass General and um, their biggest competitor was Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And they talked about it all the time. And I thought, wow, they talk about it so much. I, I should find out who they are. And my husband fi- finished up his work at MIT, and he said, where do you want to live? I said, Baltimore. So again, I went to apply at Johns Hopkins, and they had a five-year waiting list. But because I was um, from their biggest competitor, Mass General, and they wanted an inside scoop, wow. they hired me. And what year was that? That would have been 1988. That is yeah. super And cool. I worked there two and a half years. That yeah. was that Still was doing neuro ICU. Neurocritical care, yeah. Mm-hmm. I Any stories with, you want to share? Oh, gosh. Come um, on, share some stories about it. Because how many people do you know worked at such a prestigious institution in doing what you did? So share some stories. The best thing I can say about working at Hopkins is that when you walk through the doors, uh, you know, you, 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 your badge opens that door and you get in. Your shoulders go back. Your your lungs fill deeper, more deeply with air, and you know you are among the greats. You know you are working with great people. And what was so wonderful about Hopkins isn't so much that all these great minds were there, but not only were they great, they were humble and they were teachers. I remember uh, after an orientation, the nurses led um, interdisciplinary rounds every morning. And Can it, you explain, define what that means? So that means that um, in the morning, first thing on a, on a day shift, there would be a pharmacist, a respiratory therapist, the surgeon or the surgical team, um, the, uh, the, the orthopod, whoever, whatever team of doctors, nurses um, had any input on this, this patient was at these rounds in the morning and the nurses gave a 24-hour summary so the doctors and the rest of the team were current on what mm-hmm. was happening. And I was it was my first day off of orientation and I was uh, to be leading rounds for the first time and I guess I looked really nervous and awesome. one of the fellows was a doctor named Cliff Solomon and he said to me, Mary, don't be nervous. Mm-hmm. You know these patients better than we do and we're counting on you. And I said, yeah, but I don't want to make a mistake. And he said, if you make a mistake, we'll help you and we'll teach each other. It's not going to be a problem. And that was when I realized I was with great people. That says so much right there about being there for the right reasons. It's all about the patient. And you think about, again, what year this was happening, all this integration was happening of all these great minds to just do the best care possible and have the best outcomes for patients. And and can you imagine we do it kind of now, but it sounds like what you were doing back then 
was even more integrative and more detailed. Am I correct? It, it or was am amazing. Because totally so, I'm, I'm an outpatient kind of person. So, so it I was, need to know it more It was about really this. amazing. There was um, a time when I was learning about a certain procedure in the brain and I was trying to understand why this patient had the symptoms they had. And I was asking the surgeon and he said to me, you know, I'm doing this surgery on someone tomorrow. Why don't you come into the operating room and I'll show you exactly, I'll show you that anatomy up close and personal and I'll show you why there's if swelling if there's swelling in that area this would be affected and that was a usual occurrence come into the hour and watch this see and a lot of us would love to be able to do that um that was one of the most amazing times for me in my training was when i got to watch procedures and actually see the anatomy at work and for you to have these mentors and these teachers these people are not these people are the best the cream crop they're the best of the best in teaching you and saying hey it's not like you're a third year resident or anything like that you're one of our nurses you're interested come on in wow it was it was it was real heady a real heady time to be a nurse in a in a you know a smaller hospital and a lesser known hospital is Mm -hmm. still great nursing nursing is fantastic but to be among greats like that and to realize that they they weren't full of themselves or there was not an arrogance but a but really it was an atmosphere of teaching learning sharing growing together uh, it changed me it it actually shaped me as a leader and that's what's so exciting now remember we start back at getting your bsn we're working at all these great places and then all of a sudden you go to drexel you get your actually no i you I, never I, went to drexel i went to drexel okay. but i i actually went into long term care as an right. educator and okay. realized quickly that I could do some good work there. I realized quickly that I loved the older adults. Right. I loved that there was a long-term relationship with, and now we don't call them patients, we call them residents right. in, in this arena. And I realized that that the nurses and the aides who worked in that area were not being given the leadership and the support they needed, and I thought I could affect change there. Then I went to get a master's degree in executive leadership and organizational design. And that was what year? 2009. Okay. So, 2009, so mid-career. mid the big change is being made. You get, your, you get your education. You're like, I feel like you, in the back of your mind, had a goal. Can you summarize, like, you said change, but... What did you envision? Did you have a vision like, I can go into this field and in the next 20 years, I would like to see XYZ happen? Or did it just kind of naturally, you know, organically happen? I wish that I was that organized. (laughs) I actually have to tell you, I was probably one of the most reluctant leaders there was. Really? Um, Yeah. People would try to promote me to jobs and I would sooner leave the company than take a a promotion because I didn't, I had, I lacked confidence. I didn't think I was the right person for the job. And then I was, I was at a job um, as the, as the assistant director of nursing of a 324 bed skilled nursing facility. Where was that? In North Wales, Pennsylvania. Okay. My director of nursing was just awful, just a, Mm -hmm. just a bad leader. And when I was asked to step in for her, I knew that I was the right person to do the, to do the job because I knew the staff so well and I knew the residents well. And because I had been so deeply entrenched in operations there, I knew that I, I could impact change. And so what did you do? The first thing I did was get rid of agency staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, that was a matter of just loving, caring for my staff. 
um, making working conditions such that people wanted to be there. They didn't want to call out. So it was a matter of paying the right wages. It was a matter of giving the right education and walking around every day and hugging people and loving them and letting them know their value. How long were you there? I was there about just shy of five years. And in that time, I can just imagine if you had resident satisfaction, family satisfaction, you know, we really didn't look into that way back then, did we? Yeah, we did. Did you? Yeah, okay, we how did. did you, how we did you had, do that? We had so many different markers of quality and of care. First of all, some of the measurements were we went from 60% agency use to mm-hmm. zero in six months' time. How did you pull, now, now, how did you pull that off? Because I think that's a huge problem that we see today that, you know, we were reaching out to all these uh, agencies and that we can't do. We did a couple of things. What'd you do? First of all, I loved my staff and I cared about them and I worked on the floors with them on days when they were short staffed. See, that's a key. And, and I always tell people that if you're short staffed, you need to show your staff that you can do everything they do and not be afraid to do it. And we do that in our office like of every day. And so a lot of people in management Sorry, but they just get to the point where they don't feel that they need to do it. It's beneath them. Why should I do it? I went into management. And for you to actually get your scrubs on and say, let's do it together. What a respect. Often I didn't even have scrubs on. I was doing it in my heels and my suits. But the point was they needed help and I was a nurse and I could help. Another thing we did, I learned that one of the most valuable resources we weren't using were nurses who had gone into the voluntary recovery program, nurses who had become, um, who were diverting narcotics or had become addicted to alcohol or drugs and had gone through a state mandated program mm-hmm. and were now clean, sober and able to work. But most places weren't willing to hire them. And in many cases, these were really seasoned, experienced nurses. So I wrote policy. I, I got a group of um, people together in my organization to understand and support this. And we started hiring nurses out of the voluntary recovery program. And it takes a little work. I mean, they can't give narcotics for the first six months. You have to give a weekly report to their case manager for the first six months, and then they sort of earn the right to hold narcotics keys again. And I became known as the director of nursing who hired them. And so we had just an amazing amount of people. How grateful were they? I can only imagine for that second, for that opportunity. Well, it, it was more than that. How grateful I was to have those seasoned nurses in my right. building. We just said win-win. We, you know, nurses are really famous for th- saying things like, you know, you're not going to do that on my license. My license is at risk. And it's really not true. The only person's license who's really at risk is the one who's making the policy. Um, there you go. So, so I had a Note really, self. I had a really right policy and I had to get mm-hmm. organizational support for these nurses. And we had pastoral support and social work support for them. I mean, there was more than just coming to work and doing your job. And I had people who failed, and we had to right. pull our nurses together and talk about that in a in a non you know violating HIPAA way. But we had to we had to stay the people who were compassionate. And my thing was, if I'm a nurse and I and I want my staff to give loving care to the residents we serve, I have to love them. Right. I have to be loving. I have to demonstrate love and care. Yes, be the example. And one of the one of the things I was able to really help our staff mm-hmm. see was they could they could do that too to to their colleagues who had gone through a difficult time. What an amazing mentor you are, Mary. Thanks. That's, I have goosebumps, especially the fact that you're willing to really dive in, work on those policies, make sure that everything was done and give, uh, to me, it's, it's love. It's giving people a second chance. It's proving that, yes, everybody makes a mistake, but now I can really contribute. And you 
did that. And so you talk about making I feel mistakes. Like, I, I, I feel like I feel like you're one of the first out there that you're a pioneer in this. And maybe I'm wrong, but this is just yeah. This is gut wrench. This is awesome. So you talk about making okay. mistakes. It's it's such an interesting environment. Of course, you know when you're running a whole a building the size right. that I run now. What you want is transparency. You want to know what the mistakes are so you can fix them and give tools. So you really have to create a culture of safety. You have to create a culture where people feel safe to tell you that they really screwed up and they're not going to lose their job. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time. And I'm glad to say that we have that where I work now, where my in my community now in Oakland. We just say mistakes happen, they're unfortunate, but instead of blaming a person, we say what system failed, what education didn't happen, and what tools did that person lack, and how do I get the better tools in place to support the staff so this doesn't happen again? Again, you're the leader, and you're you're taking ownership of it, and instead of the blame game, policy and changing and, and, and nurturing and having that conversation behind closed doors, you know, is really amazing. It's it's, it's, BG, awesome. it's love. I mean, no. it's, and, and it's you're nothing saying, short I, I know, of love. I know, it's I mean. love. But remember, it's also your job. But you are somebody who gives back so much and you love so much and, and, and you're, you're a very unique person in a sense that I wish, again, we could divide and make like 50 billion Mary Lindys out there because <laughs> That's sweet. of, no, no, it's the truth. Because you're dedicated. You love your residents. You love your staff. You love your job. You have grown from someone who is told you either are a nurse or a teacher. And now you're running a big facility in California. Um, how proud am I of that? Can, can you tell me a little bit about how you transitioned, how you ended up in California from Pennsylvania yeah. or from uh, Maryland? Um, it was from Pennsylvania. Yeah. I was, um, I was in a great position at uh-huh. a wonderful company in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Very happy. Didn't think I was ever going to move uh-huh. from there. I just thought I would continue to grow in the organization. In a fit of crazy, I met and got married in a month's time, uh, about six and a half years ago. And he really wanted to be back west. So, okay. um, we moved west and I had to get relicensed. I had, to, I got, I was able to get, um, reciprocity on my nursing license, okay. but I had to take state nursing home administrator boards over. Right. And California has different licensing for assisted living and, and independent living called right. RCFE, residential care for, facility for the elderly. I had to take that licensure and, uh, just had to start over. And, uh, that, that exam is not the easy exam, easiest exam to t- take. The is NHA, it? the California state exam, it's called Title 22 for the nursing home administrator's license, has a 50% fail rate the first two times people take it. Wow. Um, and you passed? Of course I did, because I wasn't going to give anybody the satisfaction of, <laughs> of knowing that I didn't. Um, <laughs> That's my Mary. <laughs> I think I passed because I actually studied. Some yeah, well, people just think they're going to wing it. And, right. And I studied. I studied. Truthfully, I studied about 20 hours a week for 10 weeks. And, you know, your residents in Oakland are so lucky to have you. I'm lucky to have them. Oh, my gosh. It's a gift every day, those relationships. Tell us about your average day there. There's never an average day. Okay. Um, Fair. So I um, have about 275 um, residents Mm -hmm. age 65 to 103 who live there. 103. Um, I have 180 staff. That's 
full and part-time who work there. Mm-hmm. And, and I see my role as just being the community mentor, as just seeing, as being the person who guides leaders to be best, helping them solve problems when they, they get stuck. Um, I see myself as, as the person who hands out love, helps people feel good about the work they do and good about the lives they're leading. Mm-hmm. Um, my day starts every morning at around 7.30. Mm-hmm. I go into the dining room and there are about 40 residents who eat breakfast. And I just say good morning to all of them and that's how I get my finger on the pulse. I know what the rumors are. I know, I know kind of what, what angst they have that day. Right now, the big point of anxiety is our orchid garden. They're afraid that in a renovation, they're going to lose the orchid garden. You're doing a renovation right now? Well, we're going to, we're getting ready to go into okay. a huge master planning. Nice. Is um, it just a remodel or actually no, expansion a, of the it, building? It's a repurposing. So, okay. um, we thought it was going to just be a remodel and the more we kept going into it, the more we realized this needed to be re, a repurposing and a master planning. So we're doing that. Um, we've been planning for a year and mm-hmm. a half. We're getting ready to start talking to the residents about Great. what we're doing. Um, so my mornings are just getting my finger on the pulse with residents. Uh, then three days a week, I meet with my leadership team, and that's just really to champion them and tell them how great they are and give them give them the, the energy to do well and to help them solve problems for themselves. I really don't believe in answering them directly, I believe, in guiding them. And the truth is, they're so strong, they're so good that I can be out of the building like I am today and yesterday and not worry for a minute about things not getting done. It's because of great mentoring and, like you said, the most important thing is love. And I love the fact that I bet when you walk in the building, your residents gravitate to you and say good morning, give you hugs. It's a funny thing. You. Most of the residents really love me and see me as as their friend. Uh, but some residents, and there are usually a, a group in every community. There are five who they're, you know, some some old people babysit their grandchildren, some volunteer at museums, some crochet, and mm-hmm. and some travel and some complain. Right. And there are about five in every community, and that's why I try to get my finger on the pulse every day because right. the the pot stirrers are those five complainers. Right. And if I can dispel rumor, then we can have good days. But yeah, it's most it's just love. Um, I feel like people say I give so much to the community, but you know it sounds so trite to say, but I say, but I get so much more back. Uh, they are family to me, my staff and the residents. And there's not a day that I go to work that I don't like being there. Now, that gives me huge hope to hear your story and hear about how you are. I'm sorry, but I think you sell yourself short. I think you're a mentor. I think you're brilliant. I think you're able to analyze people, problems. You are, like you said, I love the word championing them. You're letting them have uh, a lot of input and make decisions. You're guiding them. Sometimes you may not agree with the decision, but you may let it roll and see where it goes because what you're doing is you're helping all of your staff grow. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that everybody in your staff from the people behind the kitchen to the people are actually on the floors um, cleaning the rooms every day, that they all know you. They all respect you, and I can only imagine how grateful they are because you are one of them, you know, and in a lot of facilities like that, my observation is that sometimes people put themselves on a pedestal and they think they're like, you know, and so what do you think about that? Am I right or am I wrong? 
you're very kind. I'm as only as good as the leaders who work with right, me. Exactly. You've and, got a um, great team. And I do I do consider myself a mentor and a guide, but the truth is these are great people. Yeah. You can't be in this industry. You can't take care of old people if your heart isn't guiding that. I've always had a book I've wanted to write called Honorable Leadership because I really think a lot of us feel called to honor our father and mother. Right. And and I think we're doing it or we had a grandparent that we really loved and I think we're doing it because because of that relationship and those relationships drive what we do. Right. But the truth is, you know, I'm completely flawed as a leader and I say I'm sorry, can you forgive me as much as as you know, and, and I, there's, I can. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's what I try to tell people in medicine in general, that people really dig and respect when someone admits it didn't go as well as it could have. I'm sorry. What can we do to, to make sure it's well, better and learn from that? And if I'm not willing as a leader to make mistakes and to admit my, my mistakes, how do I, how can I ever expect my staff to do the same? Exactly. Live by example. Yeah. So uh, it, there's great joy in it. There's mm-hmm. just joy. Uh, the relationships, you know, drive what I do. The relationships with my staff, with my residents, right. with the people in our community. Right. One of the things we've gotten to do this year is get become part of, part of the greater um, Oakland community. I'm now on a, a leadership team called Adams Point Neighborhood right. Group. And just being able to give back in that community as the entity St. Paul's Towers is wonderful. Did you recently have some sort of like, I don't know if it was an open house or some sort of gathering with people in Oakland? Um, Once a year. In, what was that all about? Uh, the first Tuesday of August, there's okay. a program across the country in large cities called National Night Out. And it's, okay. it's just about creating community and neighborhood. Okay. And St. Paul's Towers for the last, I believe, eight or nine years, mm-hmm. and I've only been there for five of them, has hosted the largest national night out in, really? in the city of Oakland. And we get about four or 500 people at those parties. We set it up like a carnival. Uh-huh. And uh, we have games. We have giveaways. We have a DJ. We have a cotton candy machine, a popcorn machine. How fun machine. is that? We have a face painter, a balloon man, and um, and just tons of prizes. And we bring all of our homeless neighbors in, and we pack them with food to go. And it's just a blast. It's just so much fun to be out there with the community and, and having our neighbors understand what this 23-story high-rise is in their neighborhood. They have no idea that we're retirement community we just look like a big apartment building i want to sneak there i want to visit when you guys have that that sounds like so much fun i want to help out i want to volunteer okay it's the first tuesday in august you're welcome to come please do i would love to so we're going to shift gears a little bit okay okay we have a huge elder population that is growing exponentially where do you see the future of elder care in general and let and then we'll dive in a little bit more well, I see it. There's, there are a couple things to talk about. First of all, every day, I don't even know the number, so many hundreds of thousands of people right. are, are accessing Medicare, becoming Medicare eligible. So the baby boomers are becoming Medicare eligible. And what's significant is these boomers have not saved money like generations right. in the past and have been much more um, transient. So they don't have 35 years in one house and can cash in on one house. Right. So they don't have a lot of savings. Uh, so they're looking to age in place in their homes or downsize their homes to apartments and services need to meet them there. Mm-hmm. They're, the kind of community that I run is for the top 5% of people seeking elder care. Right. Because uh, it, it costs money to do sure. that. Although a lot of my people do run out of money, they they outlive their assets because they're getting such good care, and we do care for them till their death um, without assets. Right. Um, I think right now I have thirteen people 
in, that in my case, community in that yeah. case. I think what else we have to really look at is um, the Medicare dollars to skilled nursing homes have really changed over the last years, mm-hmm. and they're changing again. Right now, I'm really looking at how do I do skilled nursing services, which is really called home health, right. in people's independent living and assisted living apartments. Number one, people don't want to be in the skilled nursing home. And number two, the Medicare dollars aren't covering their stays there. So it's it's yes. not even a wash anymore. So we're we're actually piloting an aging in place model in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're really looking at do people do people absolutely need what are the things that make people re- require to be in a skilled nursing home? And there are very few of those things that we can't do with waivers or exceptions. In- that really excites me. And and the other thing is also those that don't want to be into, uh, I hate to use the word facilities because I think that's harsh. We don't call it, that's the right. F word. We it's call harsh. it community. Right. And that's yeah. why, I, that's why right away I said harsh. Yeah. And I, in communities, it's like sometimes they want to just stay at home or they want to have their own little apartment. And it's interesting, like over here at ASU, they are launching a, uh, I think it's like eight story building over right on campus for independent living and potentially assisted living where they can actually participate in ASU taking classes. Yeah, we do that with Berkeley in my community. Do you really? Yeah, absolutely. My residents, um, I'd say about 70% of them are Berkeley alum right. or Berkeley professors. And, um, and they don't stop being relevant and learning mm-hmm. until yeah. they stop completely. I, I love to tell the story. I had one resident who was on the cover of Swarthmore Magazine, their alumni engagement magazine. Right. She was 90 years old and she was on her son-in-law's shoulders. Right. And she got arrested that day for social disobedience. She was in a peaceful protest. Hmm. <laughs> oh, That's the kind of, My residents don't ask me for things. They petition me. Yeah. But... <laughs> Okay. It's a Berkeley crowd. <laughs> but back to what you were saying about services and people yeah, yeah. people staying in community. Right. Um, most people don't want to leave their homes. Uh, we see this every day. In fact, when I'm bringing residents into right. new apartments in my community, we know that our co- our competitors are not the other life plan communities right. around the lake. We know that our compet- our competition really is their own home. What you're seeing now is more and more home health and home care companies with, that are pr- providing services in the homes. We have a wing of our organization called Well Connected mm-hmm. uh, that allows people in 48 states to live in their homes, but travel to art museums, learn languages, be on a, a part of a cooking demonstration all through their telephone. And it goes for 12, 15 hours a day. So there's those kinds of services being put in place so people can really have meaningful lives and then maybe have Meals on Wheels delivered or something like that. Right. I know in my own family's experience, I wish we could have had home health. And we had home health, but we couldn't really afford all the different requirements that my parents needed. So then you're looking at group homes, you're looking at assisted livings, and you're looking at the cost of all this. Absolutely just seem the ability to be able to stay home, have access to something that's going to keep you motivated, whether it be, you know, listening to a cooking, you know, show or whatever is so important. And the other thing is that we're getting caught up with the children of them that are needing them. And they're falling into this like really weird dynamic where the kids really don't want to take care of them. But they I don't, don't think, have the, I don't think they don't want to take care of them. I think they, they don't can't. they don't have the resources to right. do it cuz they're still working. Right. But you get into something about affordability which I right. think is really interesting and one of the things I get to do in California 
through an organization called Leading Age is I get to really help lobby for change in, in how funding is for for services to the elderly. And one of the things we're looking at right now is making assisted living Medicaid or Medi-Cal eligible. Right. There are only a few states that do that now. If you have nursing home insurance, which a lot of people coming up into aging care right now, they do have, that pays some for assisted living and some care in your home. To right. Keep, it basically is not long-term care insurance. It's keep you out of long-term care insurance. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's that's a great benefit. It'd be nice to see that more standardized so people really knew what, what product they were buying and what, what they exactly. coverage they had. It's so confusing. It's they just every, poli- every policy is different. Right. They're great for the people who have them. Um, and we have to learn how to care for ourselves and our own within families and within communities. And I think we've really gotten away from that. So our leadership team twice a year um, across the street, there's something called Market Day that our company does. We mm-hmm. sell retail excuse me, wholesale fruit and vegetables to old people in low-income areas. And so they can buy, instead of a bunch of bananas, they can buy one banana or they can buy one cucumber. They can buy just what they need and they can buy it at cost. But what's happened out of those that market day network is that people really, it became a social activity and people wanted to stay and they started potlucking. They started, really? they started bringing, you know, bag lunches mm-hmm. to stay and, and enjoy these, their neighbors. And so now what we do is we just provide lunch for them and uh, through different, so twice a year, my, my community cooks lunch and our leadership team serves lunch to our low income neighbors. What, what's beautiful is what I'm hearing is that doing what you can to give back to your community that you live in and that and that your residents Always. are involved in. And, Always. And it would be so fantastic if we could hear of programs like that here in Arizona. There may be programs out there that I'm not aware of, uh, just what access that I've had and what research I've seen and and been part of. I haven't seen anything like that, I that think, model. It's, and I hate to call it a model, but it kind of is a model. Well, I think what you have to look for is states that have a higher mm-hmm. for-profit senior services, for-profit okay. chains of assisted livings and independent livings versus uh, not-for-profit. Not-for-profit will right. always do that social accountability. So that's what's hard. The not-for-profits are getting eaten up and bought by the for-profit chains. Roughly, like, is it is it a certain percentage? I wish I knew that yeah, number. I don't. I'm really, I'm really I don't curious that about number. that. But yeah, you always think of the, all the nonprofits. And I was talking to someone uh, just the other night, and she was saying the same thing: is that it's more and more for, for profit. And the other thing is that what I learned, especially in Arizona and Texas, that everybody that's building actually these residential homes, assisted livings, are actually more in the construction, in the real estate business, and they're not in healthcare. Yes. And so what's happening in Arizona, I can't speak to California, but my observation in Arizona is that we're lacking that uh, healthcare piece, which is probably the most important piece, and it's being driven so much for the profit. And, and and in Arizona, that kind of scares me. Um, it we should have to scare make money. us. It should scare a- us. A- and, and, and yeah, exactly. And so... You know, we have these things so complicated board and care homes that are popping up all over in California. And I know, I know you have them here. They're smallest houses. They're small house assisted livings. So my community has a 21 bed, 21 apartment assisted living in our 23 story tower. And, um, 
I operate under the same regulations as somebody who has three bedrooms in their house and charges $4,000 a month to just provide three meals a day for somebody. I operate under those same regulations. And it's tricky. I mean, people don't need to be able to be nurses to give medications. Mm-hmm. They're not, they're not administering medications. They're, they are delivering medications and the, and the resident themselves has to be able to say, yes, those are my pills and they take them themselves. What happens if the resident can't say that? Then they need to go to a skilled nursing home okay. under those regs. Under those regulations. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In California. It, yes. And I'm pretty sure it would be the same in, in, Arizona. in Arizona. Well, yeah. It's very loosely. I'm, I'm sure the lines get blurred. <laughs> it's, it's very loose. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Wow. I'm just amazed at, I learned so much. And like, you're a really good friend of mine. I learned so much about all of the programs that you're doing at, in your facility. I community. hate to use it. I'm community. so sorry. Community, community, community. It's an F word. We don't I know, like it in I know. Business. I've said the F word like three times. I think the reason I said facilities, because we've said the word nursing homes a few times. And as soon as I've hear the word nursing homes, I have a certain feeling about it. Just well, from you have an experience. institutional view. And the truth is we're really transforming nursing homes to homes. And I always say, if I have 270 people who live in my community, I have 270 different ideas of home and I have to accommodate all of those. Wow. And that's because home is, home is individual. It is. For somebody, it's where my pet is. For somebody, it's where I'm in my pajamas all day. For somebody right. else, it's where I entertain. Mm-hmm. So home is different for everybody. Do you see this? And I guess that's why I got wrapped up on the F word a little bit. I guess in my perfect world, I would like to see nursing homes as we know it go away. So I've spent the last probably 15 years of my career transforming nursing homes away from, I always say we have the audacity to call them homes. (laughs) Right. Because they're anything but. That um, was my mom's biggest fear before she died was don't ever let me go to a nursing home. Please, 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 please. We do it through two things called person-centered care and a household model. And what that really means is the staff who are closest to the resident and who have the most meaningful relationship with the resident get to make decisions with the residents. Right. And leaders get out of the way. Okay. But you have to obviously create an environment where it's safe to do that. And then you also let people bring in furnishing and pictures and right. things that that remind them or create home for them. And you, you remove trappings. I mean, we were modeled after hospitals. So right. we wake people up at 1 o'clock in the morning to right. do vital signs. And there's just not a reason to do it anymore. So in our community... After 10 o'clock and before 6 o'clock in the morning, there's no interruptions unless there's a medical reason to be interrupted. Uh, and that's pretty rare in a nursing home. Exactly. And um, I apologize profusely for saying the word. That's okay. F. Because, <laughs> no, honestly, because in my head right now, I guess I'm going through a lot of emotion over my parents and, and a bunch yeah. of people that I know in Arizona. And one of the things I kept on saying to myself was, the the residents of like my 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 parents lived at Renaissance and it was an amazing residence for independent living. But when they went to a, a residence and assisted living, took all their stuff, it wasn't quite as smooth. And I kept on thinking of the nursing home down the street and how different that whole arena. And I hate the F word there because it is an F word there because you didn't have any of your stuff. It felt like being in a hospital room. The nurses just. Well, the good news is the regulations are changing on a federal level. The regulations are changing that really require us to have person-centered care and require us to 
to um, involve the, re- I need the resident in all of that care. It's okay. changing slowly. In the Midwest and on the East Coast, change has come much more quickly. Uh, okay. California, I don't know about Arizona, but where I am in California, regulations have prevented us, but now the federal regs are helping us to do that. So people get it, and it's got to, it's got to move away from facility, and it's got to be home. <sighs> that excites me. Thank you. You're welcome. Seriously, that was probably the biggest, most important message that I wanted to hear and share with everybody is that there is hope. Don't give up. What we all need to do is we need to advocate for our families and we need to advocate for our friends and we need to ask the right questions. We need to find the Marys of this world really care about their residents. Because there's a lot of people out there that are in it for the wrong reasons, and I'm saying it, but Mary is the person who's giving me hope. That's really kind. No, it's not kind. It's the <laughs> truth. I, I'm, But I'm the lucky one that this found me and that, that this is what I get to do. And I'll say one more thing. Yep. It's, it's never closing. about the leader. It's really about the staff. And if I can guide them and, and get them to do great things because they trust me, it's really not about me. It's about them and, and them being free to, to give great care. And this not only goes with residential elder care, this goes with care from birth to that transition. Everything that Mary's saying, we should be doing in outpatient care as well. Care about our patients, listen to our patients, love on our patients, make sure that they have the right to say everything they need to say that they advocate for themselves in the correct way. Mary, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Mary Lindy is, in my book, one of the most amazing people I've gotten to know, and I've gotten to know since age four. And (laughs) um, I can't wait to spend like the whole weekend with you. Stanley, did you learn a lot on this show? Yes, you did. Um, We are... Best Health Radio on Bar Regis, Ask the PA, www.askthepa.com. Remember my book, Surviving the Business of Healthcare, Knowledge is Power. We dive into a lot of different um, topics with that. I am so grateful. Thank you to all the nurses out there for all the great care that you're doing. True. Thank you to the physicians, the PTs, the OTs, the CNAs, the respiratory therapists, the Everybody, I know I'm missing people. Dining servers. Yeah, dining servers, the people that are cleaning our rooms, housekeeping, the people that are delivering our meds, the pharmacists out there. Thank you to all of you for the great care. And if everybody would have the attitude of a Mary Lindy, what an amazing world we live in. Well, that's all I have to say today. Can't wait for our next show, but there's one last thing I have to say. This is May. It is Skin Cancer Awareness Month. For myself as a melanoma survivor, and I'm hoping I kicked his ass. Sorry, I said that on the radio. (laughs) Please wear wear sunscreens. We'll see you again. I'm hoping my next show to have an amazing dermatologist on, and we'll see what we can do with that. Anyway, till next time, have a great day. Bye. (laughs) 